This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, three days since the earthquake, the search for survivors becomes more desperate across Turkey and Syria. Also, the Australian search and rescue team heading to the quake zone vows they'll represent Australia's Turkish community. Do our best and be part that they can think that, you know, even though they can't be there, that there is other Australians that they they can see when they come back that that are over there to help um, the local community. And Liberal MP Alan Tudge to quit politics, sparking a by-election in his Melbourne seat less than a year since the election. Comes across as very arrogant and not willing to look into social justice issues. He's done everything what we would like him to do. I mean, he's got good ideas and he's put them forward so we don't have any issues with them. Thanks for your company. Rescue teams in Turkey and Syria are searching for signs of life in the rubble of thousands of buildings three days since they collapsed when large earthquakes hit on Monday. As every hour passes, finding people alive becomes more unlikely, though there are still remarkable stories of survival. Rescuers from more than two dozen countries have joined tens of thousands of local emergency workers in the effort, but with such a large disaster zone, an untold number of people are still without help. More than 15,000 people across the two countries are now known to have died in this disaster. Sydney man Can Pahali is among the dead. He was visiting his sister and family in in Antakya, in Turkey's south, when a house collapsed. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese told Parliament today there are other Australians still missing. The Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade continues to provide consular assistance to Australians unaccounted for, of whom tragically there are a number at this point in time. Their safety is our immediate priority and we understand how difficult the situation is for their loved ones back here. That's Anthony Albanese today. Our correspondent, Sean Rubenstein Dunlop, is in the southern Turkey city of Adana. He joins us now on the line. Sean, we're now into day four of this disaster. Are people still being found alive? Well, incredibly, David, yes, we're still seeing extraordinary scenes here of rescuers um, pulling people alive from these enormous um, mounds of of rubble, children as young as newborns. Um, we, we saw uh, an extraordinary scene yesterday uh, in Hatay, the, one of the worst hit regions in Turkey, uh, a newborn um, being pulled uh, pulled from the rubble. But more than 70 hours into this disaster, hope is really fading. Those happy stories are really fewer and far between and, and turning into rare miracles. That death toll you mentioned of now about of 15,000, that was up by thousands from night to morning uh, here in Turkey. The Turkish figure alone here uh, is nearly 13,000 dead. And in Syria, it's it's really not clear at all because there just aren't enough rescuers to try to search for survivors or, or even the dead. So you can imagine in the coming days with this rising so quickly, how much higher that, that death toll will become. Thousands of survivors uh, have been spending a third night in freezing conditions, uh, rescuers working through the 
overnight. People are seeking temporary shelter and, and food in this uh, freezing cold and, and waiting in anguish uh, to see if their loved ones are alive. Now, that bitter cold is leading the World Health Organization to warn um, that there could be a secondary disaster here. Even more people than the initial uh, disaster uh, at risk uh, uh, if they don't respond quickly with aid to help people displaced by that tragedy, even more than that uh, 15,000 death toll uh, already. That's a shocking figure. Wow. Well, we heard your reports earlier today about the frustrations in Turkey as to the response. Where is that likely to go, do you think, with such a huge disaster area? Uh, are there going to be you know, enough responders to, to get to people soon? Well, look, there are so many people here saying uh, that, that they don't have rescue workers helping them. Um, uh, I, I was just told um, by a survivor this morning a, a, a horrible story um, of how they could hear their loved ones uh, in the rubble in Antarctica last night. Um, but volunteer rescue workers, not even official government workers, left because they had too many demands on their plate. They believed last night that when the, those volunteer workers left, their family members were still alive and now they're um, you know, they're horrified uh, at, at the fact that all they can do is dig with their own hands. So people here are angry. There's rising anger with the Turkish government because of slow delays in rolling out help, but also because of uh, a lack of preparation in what is a well-known earthquake zone. This is a place where criticism of the government is usually pretty muted. Dissent is muzzled. Uh, and yet people are coming out on TV, um, regular people saying, where is the state? Why aren't they helping me? And with an election looming in just a few months' time, uh, the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is, he, he's on the defence. He's even, um, he, he's acknowledging initial delays on the first day, but claims it's all now under control. The evidence shows that that's, uh, that's not the case. And he's even accusing his critics of, of lying and, and, and telling the media, urging the media not to run those stories. So uh, anger here is, is really bubbling to the, to the surface in a way uh, you rarely see in this country. Yeah, frightening scenes. Our correspondent, Sean Rubenstein Dunlop in southern Turkey. Thanks for that. Well, an Australian search and rescue team is busy preparing for deployment to Turkey in the next day or so. 72 highly trained specialists led by Search and Rescue New South Wales are being sent over by the Australian government. Samantha Donovan has more. In Hatay City in Turkey's south, a baby has been brought out through a narrow hole in the rubble 68 hours after the quake hit. She's handed from one rescuer to another and quickly wrapped in a thermal blanket. A 72-member Australian search and rescue team will soon be on the ground in Turkey, but they know their chances of finding anyone alive will be slim. We know that there there is possibilities, so we do live in hope, but obviously we have a bit of realism that we know that the longer it goes on, the chances of survival are getting less and less. 
Chief Superintendent Greg Rankin is the deputy leader of the Fire and Rescue New South Wales Task Force that's being sent to Turkey. He says most of the Australian team are firefighters who are urban search and rescue specialists, but it also includes safety managers, a police officer, paramedics, engineers and doctors. The Australians are what's called a heavy team in the international jargon, he says, and can run 24-hour operations for 10 or even 14 days straight. They're taking their own equipment. You know, a mixture of um, of tools for jackhammering, sawing through concrete. Um, we have a lot of detection equipment. Uh, on this actual deployment, we're going to be taking drones. So that'll give us a real, a real good added capability for doing a wide search over, you know, a rubble pile that normally we might have to walk it to, to try and get it, which can be quite unstable. But now we can use the drone to to fly over it, use the infrared technology and maybe pinpoint, you know, where survivors might be or, or other things of concern. The Australian team doesn't know where it'll be deployed to as yet. Chief Superintendent Rankin says the UN coordinates the international teams. And then they organise our uh, transportation uh, to get into the field and then we're self-sufficient. We set up um, a base camp, a base of operations. We've got our own tents, we've got our own water and sanitation, our own showers, our own generators. So we, we're tr- totally independent of the country. So again, not being another burden on the country we're trying to support. We have, have our own food. We don't need anything from them and our, our own sleeping accommodation. So we're totally self-sufficient for that 10 days. What do you think you'll be assigned to do when you get there? There might be sites that they said, look, we haven't, um, there's survivable cavities, um, but they might need a bit uh, some more equipment or more people that just haven't had a chance to get to them and so they'll um, they'll assign us to those. They might use us to um, ensure that there's no dangerous goods in in, in area or, or gas leaks or anything like that, um, even electricity and things like that, that we can identify, mark off. And so when the recovery people come in that mightn't have those skill sets, we've, we've painted a fairly good picture of where they could um, operate safely. You also have the possibility, and this is something that we train for, that there could be aftershocks. So there could be buildings that are slightly damaged or whatever, and then an aftershock comes and and causes another issue. So work as safely as you can in that kind of environment. But yes, there is an element of risk and danger, and we try and minimise it, especially with the cold. Now, that's one thing that we're prepared for. We're coming from Australia in quite a warm summer and, and quite humid to it and it's going to be quite cold and actually all of us this morning on our team uh, we went down and got all our cold weather gear and our thermals and all that so we're, we're very prepared for that those conditions. Has it been difficult watching what's been happening over the last few days, the, the searches going on, <laughs> some survivors being pulled out? Has it been hard to watch and not being able to get there? You, you never want to be called. You know, you never want these tragedies to happen. But when they do and you know you've got the training and all that, we all want to go and help. You know, I did an interview this morning, actually. The person after me was a, a person from the local Turkish community. And it's devastating to hear, you know, they've got the first-hand knowledge of people that they know and love that are in this. And, and that's what you want to do. You want to go over there and, and assist these people. And also because we know they've got relatives here in Australia and, and do our best and be part that they can think that, you know, even though they can't be there, that there is other Australians that they, they can see when they come back that, that are over there to help um, the local community. That's Chief Superintendent Greg Rankin, the Deputy Leader of the Australian Search and Rescue Team heading to Turkey. Samantha Donovan reporting.
This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, Google's parent company suffers a share price shock after doubts emerge about integrating artificial intelligence into its search engine. These chatbots are going to produce results that may not be true. They've been trained on a lot of data and the companies have used quantity over quality. It's going to be a a real technical challenge to make sure that they're not actually feeding us back some of those untruths. Former Cabinet Minister Alan Tudge has held back tears in Parliament as he announced he's resigning from politics, sparking a by-election in his seat of Aston in the coming months. Mr Tudge was elected to Parliament in 2010, rising through the ranks of government as Minister for Human Services and ultimately Minister for Education, amongst other portfolios. Here he was today. It's not been an easy decision for me, but it is necessary for my health and for my family amongst other reasons. Um, I certainly have not taken this decision lightly. My daughters who are um, 18 and 16 know nothing other than their their dad being away. They've had to put up with things that no teenager should have to, including death threats, the most recent of which was last week. My son is a bit younger, but I equally want to be a good father to him. It comes just over a week since Mr Tudge was questioned at the RoboDebt Royal Commission where he was asked what he knew about the illegality of the scheme that sought to convince people to pay back welfare they'd received based on automatically generated debt notices. He admitted he knew the sums being calculated could be inaccurate almost two years before the scheme was ended. Were you or weren't you? I was aware that the system, even from an income averaging perspective, had the potential to create inaccuracies. I became aware of that in January. Alan Tudge there. Our reporter Bridget Fitzgerald has been speaking to voters in the seat of Aston in Melbourne's southeastern suburbs about the move. Hearing it's that one, then I just think, oh, there'd be more to the story. So it's always want to spend more time with the family. So... I, I'm not very um, trusting, am I? <laughs> he's been very good for the um, for the area. I think he's got a lot sort of up and going, and I think he's uh, brought the uh, the rail to Roval to the forefront, which I think is uh, one of the huge concerns that's been for many many years. I mean, I've been here for over thirty years, and it's been ongoing. So I think that's one of his uh, good things that he's done. A couple of years ago, it came out that he had an affair with a staffer. Mm-hmm. He he admitted that. Has that changed your opinion of him at all? Look, I think that's private, private issue and I don't think it actually needs to be brought out to the public. Have you, have you been a fan of Alan Tudge? Do you, do you like his no. work? No. No. <laughs> what in particular don't you like about him? Well, he comes across as very arrogant and not willing to um, look into social justice issues. Has it been expected? Um, yeah, it's not surprising, I think, given what's happened in the last couple of years with all the controversy around his um, position in Parliament and about his values. So, yeah, for me, I'm not surprised. I think the controversy around um, his relationship in the early days, he was basically uh, portrayed these images of the family man and we would get, like, brochures and all the rest about, you know, he was like... A pillar of the community and then yeah there's all this stuff that came out that was like mm, okay what do you think of mr tudge oh, alan tudge has yeah. he been a good member 
I think so. He's done everything what we would like him to do. I mean, he's got good ideas and he's put them forward, so we don't have any issues with it, no. He's been under a bit of pressure in the last few years. It came out that he had an affair with a staff member and some that other issues. Be what? kept separately. That has got nothing to do really with what he stands for and what his ambitions are, I believe. So private things should stay private. They shouldn't put it out in the open. No, that doesn't come into it. About time. It was a bit shady in the years, over the years that he's been in politics. And I was a bit disappointed that he got elected recently. But uh, no, I'm kind of thankful that we have an opportunity for someone that's someone better. That's some of the constituents of Aston in Melbourne's southeastern suburbs. Well, Insiders host David Spears was in the chamber during Alan Tudge's speech and he joined me earlier. David, it wasn't so long ago that Alan Tudge was in Cabinet rising up the ranks of the Liberal Party. Now he's bowing out. He spoke of his time in Parliament, his passion for social policy. How will he be remembered, though? Well, I think uh, by the public he'll be remembered for some of the scandals that dogged him in his uh, you know, final years in Parliament, not the achievements earlier on that he spoke about, dwelt on in his farewell speech in Parliament this afternoon. And, of course, those scandals included the claims made by his former staffer with whom he had a consensual relationship, Rochelle Miller, her claims uh, of, of suffering emotional and, at one point, physical abuse uh, from Alan Tudge, claims he denied and claims that were put to, uh, you know, two inquiries that found no, made no findings against him. But nonetheless, uh, that became synonymous with his profile uh, as a politician. And then, of course, uh, the, the the policy scandal of robo-debt uh, and his involvement, particularly towards the, the latter stages of the uh, Coalition's time in office as the Human Services Minister. We've seen him just in recent weeks before the Royal Commission into robo-debt. It's a pretty uncomfortable questioning as to why he didn't do more uh, to check on the legality of what proved to be an uh, illegal uh, uh, operation scheme, uh, that robo-debt scheme. So I think those issues uh, you know, obviously contributed to his departure from uh, politics uh, and uh, no doubt will uh, you know, contribute to how he's remembered. So voters in the seat of Aston will be going back to the polls uh, just, well, under a year since the election. What are the prospects for both parties in that race and what's at stake for the leaders? This is going to be a fascinating by-election, which we're expecting probably won't be until around uh, April. Uh, no date's been set yet. The, the seat itself had been you know, relatively comfortable Liberal territory in Melbourne's uh, east, uh, but at the last election, we saw swings in Victoria in particular against the Liberals uh, across the board. Uh, and in that particular seat, Alan Tudge's seat of Aston, we saw the margin slashed from just over 10% to just under 3%. So at 2.8%, the margin now, it is marginal. Uh, it's not a very um, you know, easy bet for the Liberals to hold on to. And of course, since the election, we've seen Labor's popularity grow under the, uh, you know, the, the relatively short time Anthony Albanese and the Albanese government have been in power. Uh, Peter Dutton is now the Liberal leader, and we know he's not um, the most popular in, in Victoria. So this will be a big test, particularly for the opposition leader, Peter Dutton. Well, speaking of Peter Dutton, for a while today, there was some talk that Josh Frydenberg, the, the former Treasurer, may be parachuted in. Now, it doesn't look like this is going to happen after all, but there was certainly a flurry, it seems, in the halls of Parliament. Mm. What does that buzz around the prospect of Josh Frydenberg tell us about Peter Dutton's leadership of the party now? 
Well, yeah, it's a, it's a good point. So this morning I was talking to some Victorian Liberals in Parliament House who said to me, this is all happening, Alan Tudge is going to be leaving, there'll be a by-election, and they expected Josh Frydenberg would be seeking uh, pre-selection and, and seeking a return to Parliament through the seat of Aston. Um, look, we reported that this was the expectation, uh, and it took a couple of hours for confirmation that no, Josh Frydenberg is not running. Uh, he is, of course, um, you know, uh, doing pretty well in the private sector right now, enjoying time with his family, not ruling out a return to politics, but now's not the time for him, nor is this the seat for him. Uh, but the fact that there's so much focus, uh, obviously, in the media, but amongst Liberals in particular, on the potential for a return of Josh Frydenberg shows they're still uh, keeping a very close eye on him as a potential future leader. Uh, Peter Dutton, uh, you know, the, the, the greatest success he's been able to have in the time he's been there as opposition leader is holding the show together in a difficult period. And he's done a pretty good job of that. Um, uh, but he doesn't have any rivals, really, uh, around him. Should Josh Frydenberg return to Parliament before the next election, well, suddenly he has a very clear uh, leadership rival. And that's always problematic for an opposition leader well behind in the polls. That's Insider's host, David Spears. Well, there's been another community meeting in Alice Springs, this time a group of grandmothers hoping to help coordinate a strategy for locals to lobby the NT and federal governments over alcohol, crime and poverty problems. They're concerned that $250 million committed by the federal government in response may not be directed to the right places. And as Jane Barden reports, only Indigenous residents were invited to this meeting. The $250 million committed by the federal and NT governments last week to tackle crime and poverty in Central Australia sounds substantial. But Aranda Pintaby woman Q Kenny invited Indigenous elders, young people and residents to a town meeting because she's worried about how it will be spent. We're just going round in circles. There's no real solutions that the Northern Territory current government is coming up with. The governments have committed to consulting Alice Springs communities on what they want. They've set youth diversion programs, remote job creation, better health services and family support programs as their spending priorities. Q Kenny wants bigger commitments on improving housing and education and addressing poverty in remote communities. She also wants more support for families and children who feel powerless to change their lives. These kids that are running amok in Alice Springs, they grew up under the intervention. So they've seen their parents being rejected everywhere in Abantois. She thinks the NT government's commitment to reintroduce blanket alcohol restrictions in Indigenous communities and town camps next week won't help much. This is, eventually, it is discriminating Indigenous peoples. A member of the Alice Springs Strong Grandmothers Group, Sabella Turner, is also worried about how the latest pot of money will be spent. She wants groups like hers to be funded to work with at-risk children roaming Alice Springs streets. We have to walk around, you know, and um, work with these children, talk to the children and give them meals and that. You know, we have to do barbecues and play games with them. Walpuri Yipperinya Indigenous school teacher and former NTCLP government minister Bess Price is also worried. Right now, there are so many organisations that take funding already from Commonwealth. And, you know, I just wonder where it all goes and what it's doing for the children. She says there appears to be a widespread community push to find new solutions after another meeting organised by businessmen last week. 
I've been here since 1983 and I have never seen anything like that before. It made me feel just proud of our town of Alice Springs. What do you think some of the priorities are? Rehabilitation centres out in the communities. And the other is um, for communities, why don't they build big recreational centres to attract the kids back onto their country? She's welcoming the NT government's commitment to reintroduce blanket alcohol restrictions. Because it's just so bad. I see my own relatives who are drunk six o'clock in the morning. Some of the federal and NT government's funding allocations are already creating controversy. NT Independent MP Robin Lamley is accusing the NT Attorney General Chancey Paik of giving the Tangangira Council, which runs family programmes in Alice Springs Town Camps, preferential treatment because he has family ties to its members. Tangangira Council has been allocated $2 million of the federal government's funding for domestic violence services. Allegations and perceptions is that Minister Pegg has preferred Tangangira. He's given them preferential treatment. Mr Pegg has rejected the accusation as a baseless attempt at political point scoring. Best Price is among those hoping there will be widespread input into how governments continue to respond to Alice Springs and close scrutiny of whether spending is achieving outcomes. I'm hoping that it won't be the same old people that speak all the time. Hope it will be a mixture of people from different groups. And I want to encourage them to, you know, have a say on what you really think, because this is an opportunity for all of us to speak up. That's Yibirinya School Assistant Principal Bess Price speaking to Jane Barden. Well, you've probably heard about the rise of chatbots like ChatGPT, where you punch almost any request into your computer and the bot spits out a fully formed, almost human response. Well, there is a battle of the bots going on, and today Google took a big hit. The share price of its parent company Alphabet plummeted $140 billion after it unveiled a new artificially intelligent chatbot Bard, which went on to churn out false information in a promotional video. As Nell Whitehead reports, it's triggered speculation that Google's internet search dominance might be coming to an end. Since ChatGPT took the internet by storm last year, Google's been rushing to launch a rival. This week it went public with its answer to the viral chatbot. It's called Bard, and it was introduced by Prabhakar Raghavan, Google's head of search. Bard seeks to combine the breadth of the world's knowledge with the power, intelligence, and creativity of our large language models. It draws on information from the web to provide fresh, high-quality responses. But if Google was hoping to reassure the world that it could win the battle of the bots, it didn't go to plan. After a promotional video for Bard showed the chatbot answering a question incorrectly, shares of Google's parent company, Alphabet, fell by 7% on Wednesday, knocking 100 billion US dollars off the firm's market value. Google says the error highlights the importance of a rigorous testing process, something that we're kicking off this week. That's before Bard is launched the public. But the real concerns for the company are deeper. Toby Walsh is chief scientist at UNSW's AI Institute. How we search on the web, I think, is going to change. Instead of typing in keywords, we're going to be able to ask questions and get those questions answered. Uh, And it's not clear that 
Google is going to win that race. For 20 years, Google's been our gateway to the internet, accounting for almost 93% of the world's searches. But AI, like ChatGPT's, promises to transform the way we search. Instead of uh, following links and trying to come up with the answer ourselves, the search engine is going to synthesize the answer. And that is a real existential threat to a company like Google. Uh, Not only uh, because we may not be following the links, and of course they get lots of advertising money when we follow those links, but equally because other companies may come in and do it better than them. Since its launch in November, ChatGPT has gained around 100 million monthly users, according to the bank UBS. And the bot's creator, OpenAI, has teamed up with Microsoft. After investing 10 billion US dollars in OpenAI, Microsoft's now deploying its ChatGPT technology on its own old and unpopular search engine Bing. Here's Toby Walsh again. Google may have got a bit complacent, thinking that they had an impregnable position. But it is plausible in the future that a company like Microsoft might come in and take uh, the search crown. He says Bard's blooper points to a bigger problem with large language models. They have a tendency to get things wrong, then feed that misinformation back to you as fact. In this case, Google's bot was asked about discoveries made by the James Webb Space Telescope. It answered that the telescope was the first to take pictures of a planet outside the Earth's solar system, when it wasn't. A small mistake, highlighting a bigger problem. That these chatbots are going to produce results that may not be true. They've been trained on a lot of data. Most of the internet has been poured onto these chatbots. And the companies have used quantity over quality. And there's a lot of untruths, a lot of conspiracy theories and other things. And it's going to be a a real technical challenge to make sure that they're not actually feeding us back some of those untruths. And if we can't always trust these AI chatbots to be truthful, what are they good at? What are the real sort of advantages of these tools going to be, do you think? These tools are not going to be limited to chatbots. We're going to find them in our word processes. I'm never going to have to write another business letter. They're really good at writing business letters. They're really good at coming up with suggestions where perhaps there isn't actually a correct or an incorrect answer. That's Toby Walsh, uh, the chief scientist of UNSW's AI Institute, our reporter there, Nell Whitehead. That's the programme for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. We'll be back tomorrow. Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. This week, the Indigenous Senator Lydia Thorpe quit the Greens. She's now declared herself a leader of the Black Sovereign Movement. Today, we unpack what Black Sovereignty is and its connection to the Voice referendum later this year. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.